0: Welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 38 of the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence, and today we welcome to the show Dr. Greg Lehman to discuss the concept of movement optimism. Dr. Lehman is a registered physiotherapist with more than 20 years' experience in the rehabilitation field. Greg's training as a physiotherapist, however, is just the tip of the iceberg. He has been trained as a strength and conditioning specialist, a chiropractor, and a kinesiologist, having obtained a master's in spine biomechanics while over the years publishing numerous peer-reviewed publications. Greg is a globally recognized advocate for evidence-based physiotherapy. His course for therapists, Reconciling Biomechanics with Pain Science is a highly attended continuing education seminar given in more than 35 different countries, focusing on a science-based approach to the best practice strategies of rehabilitation. Craig is a sought-after keynote speaker and presents worldwide on topics ranging from persistent pain, exercise prescription, and sports-related injuries. Greg has personally dealt with persistent pain, but manages this by incorporating meaningful daily activities despite occasional flare-ups. Movement strategies are far and wide more of a cure for pain than a cause, and Greg digs into this and much more over the next 55 minutes. As always, thank you for listening, and please subscribe and share where you can. Now let's dive right into the conversation with Dr. Greg Lehman here on the Move Daily Health Podcast.
0: So... We understand that you did a master's and then went on to become a chiropractor and from there went on to also study physiotherapy, which is part of your practice now. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a background on that path and what spurred you to study a variety of perspectives?
2: The the master's, because uh, that was like the 90s, that started because I, I thought I wanted to be a, a chiro, uh, but I had some doubts. So I thought, and I wanted to teach as well. So I thought, uh, I should learn more and be smarter so that's that's why I, I did the masters I, I had no intention of going into academics and doing a phd I wasn't smart enough for that or especially in biomechanics you have to know math and physics and things like that
1: oh yeah I know that game
2: yeah I don't uh, and so I just squeaked through uh, a master's um, but I was always interested in asking like questions and trying to answer them so that, that the masters helped with that and I thought that would help me uh, like set me up for Cairo. And then Cairo was cool because they let me do research and teach at the same time. Even though I was a student, that was interesting. Um, and then I was in practice for like five uh, five years. And then I went back to, to physio uh, school. And that was more, it sounds bad, um, but it was more for expediency rather than knowledge. Because I, I thought my Cairo training and my self-training was, was good. But if you have a physio license, just the way it works in the world, you have way more opportunities uh, to work in uh, different areas, different countries. There's just uh, more doors open. So that's why I went back to physio school. I just had a full-time practice and I went back to school at the same time. So it was just easy to do. It was was just open doors. I know that sounds horrible, but I'm not going to lie. (laughs)
0: No, we really appreciate your honesty. And quite frankly, we know quite a number of uh, actually very skilled practitioners who have done uh, similar things such as RMT or physio school for the same reasons, just of opening more possibilities and more doors for learning. So I don't think that's ill intent. If you're opening a door that then allows you to learn even further. Oh, I didn't learn anything.
2: I didn't learn anything. (laughs) No, like,
0: you didn't
2: learn anything. Oh, no, 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 like not. No, nothing. N- not in my field of MSK and orthopedics. I learned nothing. It was, <laughs> Which was which was good. That actually was validating. I shouldn't have learned anything because I prided myself on the training I had and just trying to stay up to date. Uh, yeah, so no, yeah, it was. T- and which is totally fine. It's not a knock, knock on the program. I thought the program was excellent. I just that, that was okay not to learn anything. it's like yeah, that's take good, the-
0: especially if you're already in clinical practice at that point.
2: Yeah, yeah. It should, nothing should have been too new. Like, I learned other stuff like treating patients in a hospital or cardiopulmonary things. I I, I had no experience with that. But in my field of MSK and helping people with persistent pain or injuries, you no, know, which, which is totally fine. It's like often people take my course and they're like, this is – I, I, maybe I learned something, but it was more like validating, and, and it was a big confirmation bias. And I'm like, that's okay. There's there's a point in your career where where you kind of realize you you do know a lot, and what you don't know, no one else knows either, and that and that's okay. Like there's this wall, and we don't know what's on the other side. And don't beat yourself up for thinking that that you should know it. Yeah, that's why yeah. we have researchers and smart people who try to answer those questions. <laughs> sorry, I took us off
1: topic there. Yeah, no. And so from what we understand, you also have experience working both clinical and in research. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. All right. So based on the questions that we see you put out there on Twitter and the blogs you write, um, it's just really evident that you kind of see both sides of, of that uh, dice. So can you elaborate for our listeners on biopsychosocial versus biomechanics? This might be a big topic, but
2: <laughs> it is, and it's tough because I mean the the biopsychosocial model was in response to the biomedical uh, model, which was more that pain and injury and disease has like a true like more of a tissue structural cause, and and that was it. That's all I should focus on. And and the biopsychosocial it just expands on that. If you ask me, it, it's more that it recognizes that there are biomedical considerations and pain and injury but they are also influenced by psychosocial factors that 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 that's the the big difference or you, you know and some people would go farther and say you know a lot the the drivers of many pain states might not be biomedical at all it's not like your your tissue is damaged or something it's more of a psychosocial fa- factors that influence your your sensitivity mm-hmm. so to me the, the biopsychosocial again encompasses the biomedical it just massages it and gives more nuance to it. That that's the mm-hmm. idea.
0: Absolutely, and I think that that actually hits on from an end user client perspective. A lot of people don't realize that until they're in pain and working with a clinician who is able to put that into terms that they understand. That pain is not necessarily an indication of tissue damage.
2: Yeah, that that's that that's the big thing. It's that shift that it's not about damage; it's about sensitivity. And then when you start thinking, okay, if it's about sensitivity, what are all the things that might be making me more sensitive? And, and the big one in the psychosocial world, is we think anyway, is that people have views of their, let's say your back hurts and, and you think that it's damaged and you have to protect it so you stop doing the things that you love, right? So there's a belief about your back that's not accurate about pain, but it leads to biological consequences and that, you stop using your back, which physically is good for it to help it heal and to be less sensitive, and so that's the interaction where a belief will drive behavior, and then you get in these unhealthy behaviors, and then you have more pain. Or some would say you have a certain amount of pain, and your beliefs, like like how much you perseverate on it, or worry about it, or you're fearful, and so you keep thinking about it. It's like hearing a drip, like a dripping sound at night. The more you think about it, the more you hear it. And then you can't sleep. And then, then when you say that you want to sleep, the more you think about sleeping, it influences your sleeping, so you can't sleep. Pain would be the same idea. You have some tissue that might be contributing to sensitivity, but the more you think and perseverate and worry and become fearful, we increase that that feeling or that perception. It's so our response to that sensation gets magnified. So that's that's the biopsychosocial. It's the, the interaction.
1: Mm-hmm. And don't
2: ever ask like. And with a person in front of you well how much is because how much of your pain is the disc and how much is worrying and how much is stress and that's you have no idea then that's really frustrating that's but you just got to give up on that stuff
0: yeah yeah the the i mean there are many people out there who've had the oh the pain must be in your head and that is really unfortunate because it's like well it, it's yes your central Total. nervous system is giving you feedback but it, you can't just tell someone oh no it's in your head because your imaging didn't show xyz so, yeah.
2: sorry, go yeah, ahead, don't say that no, no, i'm with you i'm with you i'm just I'm just agreeing mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and so that that actually is another um interesting thing is you do discuss some of the limitations of research as we know it, and beliefs drive behavior and sometimes people don't even realize it's with the best of intention they've over their behavior to the point where now they're suffering from anxiety or depression that they can't express through movement and the pain just intensifies and we can even get all the way through to kinesiophobia or central pain sensitization. Can you discuss what that looks like with patients?
2: specifically like what, what in terms of like, how
0: you work with those patients to help bring them back to points of activity and reintroduce positive behaviors
2: so to me i i believe in the biopsychosocial but i still often take and i think most people do a really it's still a kind of a mechanical approach like i still think that activity and exercise is and and goal setting is the way to help like so these are mm-hmm. mechanical interventions is the way to help with a lot of pain syndromes. And I think that they address a lot of the psychosocial aspects. Mm-hmm. Like, so here, if, if you're, if, if you're worried about, if you have knee OA, so you have osteoarthritis and, and it hurts when you walk and you're worried about your knee wearing away and getting more damaged. And, that, and that's a false belief. Cause like wear and tear doesn't really happen. That's a bad explanation for, for knee OA. It's, it's more about sensitivity. There's the the relationship between osteoarthritis, the amount of damage in the knee and pain is, is murky. It's not, it's not very good. So if you're worried about, you know, using your knee and causing more pain, then you'll withdraw and not exercise and not, and not walk and not be active. And those are the things that are helpful for people, right? The things that they need to be doing to help their knee. So, there, the, the belief and the psychosocial factors are stopping you from doing the mechanical intervention that's good for someone. So the intervention is to start doing strength training and walking and exercise, and, and that will definitely help out the knee, but the idea here is that that will also help out the confidence and the belief and the worry, and if they have some sensitivity in the system, it can help with with sensitivity as well. So it's still a mechanical intervention, you just need to tweak it slightly how you explain it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very well put. Thank you.
2: For me, and maybe I'm a psychologist might take another approach, which is cool too, where they might really work on the beliefs and the coping and managing stress. And that might help as well. Because w- what's cool with the biopsychosocial is I think there's lots of roads to roam here. Right. It's not there's not just one thing that has to change.
0: Oh so absolutely. There's lots of things you
2: can
0: do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have we have clients who've been in chronic pain and they're doing a wonderful job of as you would put it like mechanical intervention uh, both passive and active treatment, but then they leave a very acutely stressful situation or a very negative environment and all of a sudden they you know, that 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 last 20% that they felt just wasn't budging is now completely relieved. Yeah. So yeah, it's multiple modalities and multiple approaches and you know really treating each human as their own human and not slapstick. Like this is what you need because you have a X injury. Now with that said, we read, um, it feels weird saying that cause it feels like we've been stalking you, but, uh, <laughs> we read that you do a lot less manual treatment than you used to do. And we're big believers in empowering people to understand that they, they can help themselves. like They don't have to wait for someone else to fix them. We believe in using various treatment modalities that will resonate with their system, various movement modalities, but that ultimately a lot of it is will be in their hands if they learn the right tools. So can you tell us a little bit about your process when you started versus what it might look like now with your patients?
2: So when I started, I was first a chiro. And when you're a, a, a Cairo, the the treatment in Canada was you, you do some back manipulation. I never actually did a lot. I did more like soft tissue work, which we would call active release technique, just where you're rubbing things, you know, it would often hurt. Uh, and I would always prescribe exercise and teach exercise. And I always was, I thought, pretty good at explaining the pain problem. And I knew the biopsychosocial 20 years ago and try to, you know, give people a good explanation for the pain and then get them back to doing the things that they loved. But people would come to you as a chiro, know and you get a reputation of knowing that they're going to get some hands-on care so what kind of happened through the years is in order for me to give the good advice and the good explanations for pain and the exercises i would also have to do the manual therapy work because that's what people expected right that and that was that that was difficult and then what slowly happened over time and i did do all the other stuff which i thought was useful which i actually probably thought was the primary reason people were getting better was not my hands on stuff. thats That slowly happened. And then slowly over time, I was just able to focus on giving the exercise and the advice and the planning and and listening to my patients and helping them understand their pain and just doing all these other interventions. And I just slowly started doing less manual therapy. So it it just kind of, it wasn't conscious. It just kind of happened. Like people were comfortable just coming to see me without getting their back cracked or some hamstring rubbed or something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Nice. That's a, that's a great evolution over time to really kind of focus in on the things that you truly believe are giving the biggest uh, impact for your clients.
2: Yeah. And I may not have realized at the time that those things but I believe that I, but I knew I was giving that, that, that those interventions, maybe I believe that the hands-on stuff was more important. I, I don't know about that though.
1: <laughs> there. Um, so nowadays, what uh, what populations are you predominantly working with? Uh,
2: everybody. It's 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 great. Like, so I might have people with persistent pain for two years that are just pretty disabled and not working or having trouble with work and getting active again. Or I might be working with a, a runner who has you know three months of Achilles tendon pain. But the the processes and the fundamentals are the same. That's the the fun of if if you find your treatment fundamentals, which I think I have, then it, this the same it's the same idea. Like you're you're trying to find all the contributors to pain, work on the things that that you can, um, you know, get people doing the things that they they love. You know, build calm shit down, build shit back up. Like the, it doesn't make a difference if it's an Olympian or someone who's out of work for two years. It's just magnitude.
0: Yeah. Now, have there been any peak moments in treating either clients or, sorry, patients um, or with anybody that you've learned from that sort of changed the way you viewed biomechanics or uh, pain management or anything like that?
2: Well, I've had lots of failures, <laughs> right? <laughs> like I think of those more than anything and I, I it's humbling, that's i mean i teach mostly but i still see patients so i can stay really humble so th- those those are always the peak moments of like what what else did i need to do or where did i need to get help with maybe another health professional where i i couldn't help help this person mm-hmm. you know what what was going on why why did they stay in pain or or discomfort here like what 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 could i, I have done better so I, I think of those but that, that yeah <laughs> Think that definitely that.
0: answers it. Yeah, I mean, we learn a ton from um, each person that we interact with. So even though we've been teaching as well, we think that the one-on-one interactions are are super helpful. Now, when it comes to your courses, can you tell us a little bit more about your course? And then there was something I was curious about as an educator that I'll ask you um, afterwards.
2: So my course it started because I I've been in like the uh, trying to have people do things differently for decades like that that's one of the reasons I did my <laughs> masters because I I thought the way Cairo was taught was 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 wrong like I didn't agree with the Cairo model so that's that was one impetus of uh, of my masters so I've been doing that for a while but what would always happen people would say okay if we don't do this if those ideas are are wrong and not supported uh like you know the you, don't worry about anterior pelvic tilt for low back pain or hip pain or knee pain or something and i would say here's the research this is the reason you don't, shouldn't care about that and people would say well what do we do then mm-hmm. and so that was the thrust and impetus for the course and 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 the bottom line of the course is like how can we be be comp- how can we be comprehensive with our patients and have simple interventions that have you know complex uh, effects so like always trying to figure out what what's the mechanism of action like what's the what has to happen to help someone get better or like Uh, another theme, like we look at themes, like when should you poke into pain? When should you back off? Uh, or in our profession, we have like lots of people who practice very differently and they argue and disagree about the right way to help people and they all help people. So the thrust of my course is, well, what's the common theme amongst two gurus in the field, um, who help a lot of people? Why, why do they seem so different? But why, why do they all, what's also similar that makes them help the same people. So that that's sort of the thrust of the course. What's the what's the active ingredient of our interventions? And you figure that out, then then we create a, a framework for treatment.
0: Fantastic. What well, what do you find are some of the most common beliefs that come up when you're teaching?
2: false beliefs. Or, yeah. From, uh, from
0: education backgrounds. Cause you said that you disagreed with some of the yeah. ways that Cairo was taught. So understandably not everybody will, but what are some of those that come up?
2: So the, the, the thing that I focus on the most is like, it's a reaction to the kinesiopathological model of pain or injury. And that, and that model is essentially like our patients need fixing. Like there's something about their joints, their muscles that, are, are wrong. And that's why they have pain. And I've always rat- reacted against that and said, that's not the reason for pain. Like, you, like someone might, their shoulder can be rolled forward and asymmetrical compared to the other shoulder. And I would say that's not a cause of pain. That's normal human variation. It's great to do exercises for the shoulder, but the exercises aren't putting that joint into its proper position. They're building that person up To tolerate their movements and then they have less pain. Or, like, someone can go into knee valgus and that's totally safe and it's not a problematic movement pattern. Someone else would say, Oh, that's a faulty movement pattern. And I would say, It's not faulty. It might be sensitive. You can avoid it for a little bit, but you don't have to. You can go back and uh, avoid, avoid it temporarily, or and then you can go back and do it in the future, or you can do other things. Never avoid it. And you just calm it down and they're fine. And th- so there's nothing wrong with like valgus or a rolled shoulder or lower mm-hmm. cross syndrome, all these ideas. So that's the the, the big thing that I work on.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like le- like less like th- telling people, oh, you're all messed up. You do this wrong the way you move. More like saying, no, you can handle these normal variations. They're nothing.
0: Yes. Yeah. And that's where a lot of people get all caught up in like a perfect one way to do things without understanding that we want load variability across tissues and across joints. Cause that's what makes a human more resilient. So if they can pull into knee valgus and come out of it, but they can also keep it in line if they want to, then that is a yeah. form of load variability. That's actually incredibly helpful when it comes to playing sports or climbing or, um, any number of activities, even cycling, sometimes valgus, a slight valgus is actually a a healthier position and a stronger position for certain cyclists.
2: Yeah, I I, I I totally agree. And then what we try to do in the course, the the same thing is, is anytime you have someone like me who gives this idea, we would say, well, when is that wrong? And when are the exceptions? Mm -hmm. So when is there their value in that other approach? Or when are they right? And and figuring out those difference. So valgus, like, if you tear your ACL, going into lots of valgus consistently when you're jumping, that's probably an, that's an increased risk factor to tear it again. So there's, there's a specific case, and under certain conditions, where maybe teaching someone to avoid valgus is beneficial. High loads, previous injury. Okay, but that doesn't mean that someone who's just running or walking and they go into some valgus, we should freak out. right? And that, I think that's what we've done.
1: Yeah. I think you, I think you coined this movement optimism. Is that correct? That's me. Yeah, <laughs> that, That's me. You're a movement optimist. <laughs> I am. That
0: term, it was a great term.
1: And so basically take home is that there's, there's really no absolutes. It's really a case by case basis on whether or not that qu- yeah. movement pattern could cause an issue for a person, given who that person is and how they move and what their lifestyle is like. Totally. Yeah. And I think I read something in one of your blogs that, or maybe it's on Twitter, um, that movement quality importance is inversely related to confidence and adaptability. And that was just like, damn, (laughs) like that is so on point. Good.
0: (laughs) Now, with that said, on another podcast and on Twitter, we saw you discussing the topic of normalizing pain and then also guidelines in terms of returning to activity with certain levels of pain uh, on a scale of, you know, zero to 10, the pain scale, which I, I personally don't, really like because of how subjective it is and a bunch of other things, but can you tell us how you were taught and then kind of what your input is in terms of recognizing when somebody can sort of push into it or work into it versus when they need to back off?
2: Yeah, so it's it's a neat topic because the, there's a subset of people, and I'm probably one of them, where you're always going to have some pain at some time in a month or in a week right like it you'll have good days and you'll have bad days and, it, and it's really unfair to tell our patients that you should be you know 100 percent pain-free 100 of the time right like that that's the idea of like n- normalizing it or like you know sometimes your like your leg just feels different than the other leg like things are are naturally going to feel weird and we have to accept that and I think sometimes if we accept that it's kind of ironic then it actually makes it feel better where you don't just that's what I mean about the dripping sink the more you start thinking about it the more you hear it and the more of a problem it is so that that's that one step and then so related to that if we accept that we should have that it's normal for some of us to have some pain sometime you know throughout the month or the week we have to say it's safe we have to make sure that they're safe. We have, and hopefully we can say it's safe for you to start doing activities that you love even when it hurts. Right? And that that's actually a good thing for your re- recovery, maybe to help with pain, but also just to help with with general health and in in the long term. That it's okay. If you love running and you miss running and you've been waiting to start running until you're 100% pain-free, you might not ever be able to run again. But if someone says, you know, it's safe for you to run and you know, you can run and it hurts a little bit, little bit meaning, well, I like to say if someone looks at you, they wouldn't know that you're in pain, like you're not sort of communicating it in some way. Mm-hmm. And then and then after, you know, one, two, look in the long term, one, two, three weeks, you've been running a little bit and building up. Your pain hasn't gotten worse and you're kind of stable, like it's not ruining your life and things aren't, they're not, you know, horrible, like you haven't really flared up then it's okay. You, you know that it's it's safe to keep doing that thing that you love. And then surprisingly, what hap- sometimes what happens over time is you poke into pain like that and slowly it starts going away and you don't mm-hmm. even realize it. Suddenly you're running 12 minutes and it doesn't hurt or before you're running two before it, it started to hurt.
0: Yeah, Does that make it, sense? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's interesting because for years I used to be very frustrated because I worked in sports clinics and I felt like, I, as a movement coach, I was responsible for also being pain-free and how could I help other people if I couldn't even become pain-free? And then, uh, eventually when I just wrapped my head around the fact that I could manage my pain, then everything felt a lot better mentally, <laughs> physically. It's like, yeah, sure. It was more or less the same but I felt better about it as opposed to f- forcing through and try to impart that with certain clients who fit into the same population that, um, like congenital population I'm in where there will be more sensitivity, but as long as you kind of learn a little bit more about it and it's, it's similar to that back pain patient who bends over and realizes, Oh my God, I didn't like feel a sharp stab of pain. Like they almost don't realize, Oh yeah, I've been running 12 minutes. And I actually feel great. Um, yeah, but building that mental comfort is huge. That absolutely made sense. It's a great way to, to lay it out for people as well. It's just like building some comfort and normalcy around it, that they don't have to be 100% ready before they're allowed to do something they love.
2: Yeah. I, I remember hearing a famous physio in Canada say you have to earn the right to run. I was like, bullshit. Like you were, you were born. There's your right. Like, like as if there's all these prerequisites before you could start running. I'm like the stimulus to run and to get better at it is to run. You know, you don't have to do a bunch of squats. You don't have to be able to hold a ten. be do ten push-ups first and and three ankle hops. You just you you try to run. It might only be ten seconds, right? Yeah. It, it might just start with a hard walking program, but you can do all the other stuff as well. But you you can start running if you want to.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want to, yeah.
2: Yeah, don't. That's I only bring up that running is only a treatment if someone wants to. <laughs>
0: <Greed> <laughs> make all my patients yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I did have a patient who got better with cartwheels once, it was amazing. So, for like a week and a half, every other patient got cartwheels, they didn't like that.
0: That is hilarious. That's awesome. I didn't
2: do that, I made that up. But, uh, <laughs> it, oh, half of it, I mean, she did get better with cartwheels and. You know, I have seen people like we do this all the time. You see someone who gets better, and you're like, "Oh, that must be the key." So everyone gets cartwheels. But she literally <laughs> got better because she started doing cartwheels, and that just like blew her mind and totally reconceptualized what she thought of her back. And then she kept doing more cartwheels and burpees again, and she was amazing. Got better.
1: Out of curiosity, um, like, was she just like, "I would like to try and do a cartwheel," and you were like, "Yeah, go ahead," or like, were you like, "You should try and do a cartwheel"?
2: We like are. The intervention was just slowly building her up to do things again, go to the park, play with her her son, her young son, did like some imagined bird dogs. But the the, the messaging was like, your back's not going to fall apart. Your joint isn't out of place. You're Mm -hmm. stable. There's nothing wrong with how your core works. If you want to do it, give it a try. You can tolerate it. And so we gave a bunch of boring exercises because that seemed like she wanted to do. But then she just went out and did a cartwheel. And I swear... (laughs) that that was it all the stuff I gave her was shit it was just her doing cartwheels that got her better
1: (laughs) (laughs) this is my favorite thing ever
0: (laughs) well I um I did a number on some cranial nerves and on my spine and a lot of things in the gym were still not accessible technically like I couldn't do the rehab anything open chain was just like a no-go on the one one arm but I decided after about 18 months of rehabbing from this and, quote-unquote, re- waiting for nurse to regrow or encouraging them to, I went into aerial hoop. Do you know what that is?
2: I think I can imagine it. It's, it's a, <laughs> it looks like a cool stuff? hoop
0: in the air. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah.
2: I know my, my trampoline place has one.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that was my choice. And a lot of people thought I was crazy. But ultimately, there is... A huge amount of benefit in terms of layering things into a skill specific uh, movement modality, especially one that comes with a lot of fun now after the first session of like just learning to balance on my butt in the hoop, which is crazy hard for a spine that's kind of lost where it is in space. It was so much fun and the soreness was so real. But again, the perception behind that soreness was really positive as opposed to like, oh my gosh, have I completely screwed myself up again? So um, I love the cartwheel story. I'm going to start telling that. Just go do cartwheels. Probably not so. some of my patients.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you just kind of touched base on another thing we wanted to uh, ask you a few questions here because there's there's a lot of you know myths out there. About the human body, um, and you just mentioned weak backs, and a lot of people believing their spines are just innately fragile. Um, yeah. Can you just dive into that a bit and just explain to us why backs are not innately fragile?
2: So the uh, let me step back a, a second here. Like I want to say that when someone has a low back pain, doing exercise and and the impetus to do the exercise is often the idea that the spine is unstable or something. So people get these exercises. And they definitely help people with pain. And often what happens, people will say, aha, that proves that the spine was unstable before <laughs> and that it needed stability. And that's, uh, that was the problem. But that, that hasn't really been well tested or proven. And what you see is for most low back pain, it doesn't really matter too much what exercise you do. It probably does matter what exercise you do, but just for another reason. Like maybe what matters it's it's relevant to the person. It's you start doing exercises that are something that they haven't done before, or they're exercises that just stress the spine and build it up. So, that, or it's an exercise that builds confidence. So, it has nothing to do with stability or weakness. It just works via another another reason. So, I want to I want to say that like b- before I get into this. Okay, so then the idea behind the weak spine, I think I think it happened because in the '90s there's all this work on s- spine stability work where. People would say um, the osteoligamentous spine, which means just the bones and ligaments, will buckle with like 10 kilograms of pressure, which, which is true. But the thing is, we're not in the walking dead and we're not osteoligamentous spines. Like we have muscles and a nervous system that surround the spine. And so the spine is actually inherently stable in the human body. It's only unstable if you rip it out of the body right? That, so so there's just this idea that that came that people's spines were like wearing away and that they're inherently weak and that the spine is something that needs protection. And I don't know where it came from, but that's sort of the idea. And there's some work by Ben Darlow who went into this and just sort of evaluated people's beliefs about their back. And people feel that the spine is easy to harm and hard to heal. So that that's where we are. And that's, And that, to me, often leads to fear, avoidance, the idea that you need to protect it, the idea that you need your spine to be in this ideal posture, that if you deviate from these postures or if your muscles don't work the right way, you're going to get pain or going to stay in pain. And these these ideas aren't well supported. And I, I think that's where the biopsychosocial feeds into the mechanics that you get worried and that magnifies the pain that you feel. There. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's great. And I know I'm only one example, but I'm a former competitive strongman athlete. And if you looked at how I deadlifted for the majority of my young lifting career and the weight I was lifting with and the fact that I have no back pain today, I would have to say that backs are pretty damn strong and resilient. <laughs> yeah.
2: And and what's important with you, I would guess, is like what I think it's technique probably mattered how you lift there, like especially when you get into heavier loads. You need technique for performance you probably figured out the best way to lift for you which would have been different than somebody else Mm -hmm. and i would say the most important thing injury in there is that you just slowly progressed over time and gave your spine an opportunity to adapt just like your knees and your ankles if you're a runner it's the it's the same thing and that and that's the shift it's like adaptability yeah adaptability is finite there's some limit so not everyone could lift what you lifted i'm sure but you know that the principle there is we adapt to the right stress, and provided we put ourselves in an environment that allows adaptability, good nutrition, good sleep, all that stuff, then then we succeed.
0: Mm-hmm. Can we touch on another uh, common myth that we see out there and that we regularly speak to our clients about? They come in with the belief that their glutes aren't firing.
2: Uh, yeah.
0: And, and now my understanding is if their glutes were absolutely not firing, they'd be. Flat on the ground. But I don't know where it came from. And I don't understand I do. <laughs> why it still is perpetuated. But can you touch on that? Yeah.
2: So it came from Vladimir Yanda, who was just this great, I think he was a medical doctor out of like. Yeah, he was. back yeah. Who just coined the term the lower cross syndrome, which essentially said like people have anterior pelvic tilt because their abs are weak and long, their rectus spinae are like uh, short and tight their hip flexors are short and tight and then their glutes are not strong or they're inhibited meaning like they're not turning on as much as they should so that was the idea uh and he did a test where people would lift their leg up and he would see like by palpation or looking the order of muscle activation and he would say if the glutes were the last to turn on that's a problem so i published a paper in 2004 and we looked at that order of activation. And we found that everybody, there's like 17 people in the study, everyone's glutes were delayed. These people had no pain. That's just what they do. <laughs> the glutes turn on last, like they're naturally inhibited. And then we did this follow up study, we didn't publish it, because we only did a few people where we wanted to look at the glutes and the lats, how they fire together. And you don't, you don't really need a lot of, so to your point about people will fall down, it's kind, that's kind of true, but, but only with higher load activity, you actually don't need a lot of glute activity yeah. when, during most tasks. The glutes are, are there for running, for sprinting, for climbing up hills and like deep squats and things like that. When you're in a low load activity, like just walking, you're not going to feel a lot of glute activity. Mm -hmm. So if someone tells you your glutes are shut off, and you start feeling your ass when you're walking, you will be like, Oh, my God, you're right, my glutes aren't working. And what you're actually palpating there is like normal human behavior. You don't (laughs) need a lot of glute activity. So again, what's happened is we've pathologized normal, meaning like you won't feel a lot of glute activity. Uh, And then when you look at the research in general, when people have low back pain, when they have hip pain, when they have knee pain, They do not have less glute activity, Mm -hmm. and in some studies, they have more glute activity. They are overactive, so the whole theory has hasn't been supported at all. Right. Boom.
0: That's (laughs) great. (laughs) It's excellent. Now, on that note, though, of pathology, you know, a lot of people can develop fear based on what their imaging shows, and. Their imaging, or sorry, their understanding of imaging also leads to beliefs that then lead them to modify behavior. So it can be this negative cycle because somebody's perception of something that is quote unquote proved via imaging doesn't allow room for the fact that, sure, that can show degeneration on your imaging, but that's actually pretty normal for your age group.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like bulging discs, people are what ends up happening. They might have low back pain, you get a scan, you could have a bulging disc. In some people, that that might be relevant. It could contribute to nociception. But at the same time, there's plenty of people who have no low back pain, and they have a bulging disc. So it's not destiny. And so that where it's a problem is if people think, oh, no, I have a bulging disc. I need to now protect my spine, stop bending, stop lifting, stop running. So again, it's, it's only a problem when it gets in the way of like healthy behavior which would be like using the spine. And the irony here is if you do have a bulging disc or have some changes on your spine, the argument should be you need to start stressing your spine because that's the thing that's going to help heal it or at least make it stronger or build up the tissues around it and the nervous system to Mm -hmm. handle that potentially uh, sensitive disc or something like that.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because then you introduce deconditioning when people remove so, so much movement from their diet that now you're just looking at the full system being less inherently resilient.
1: Yeah, and that kind of segues us into another one. I know you worked with uh, Stu McGill, who's a well-known uh, back health expert, and the idea that you can't lift with a flexed spine; it always must be neutral. Can you speak to that?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I I think certainly Professor McGill would would acknowledge that the spine is is gonna is gonna flex, and that he he wouldn't be against some, some flexion. he, he, he would certainly say it, it, it depends. So, but his work primarily would be that a neutral spine and remember neutrals a range, like, and, and it's actually hard to define what it is in, yep. in a live human, but it's a range. It's sort of like the end of neutral is where you start getting resistance to, to motion. If you bend your finger back, there's a point where it's very easy for it to move. And then there's a point where you start getting resistance. So that's, we call that the end of the neutral zone. So the the argument for 30 years has been that the spine is safer if it, if it's used in this neutral zone or, you know, it can go into full spine flexion, but maybe you don't want to do that too much. That, that, that has sort of been the argument through the years. And, and, and then I guess the debate is like, is it, can you really do it too much or what, what is too much? Do we ever really get to that amount? Is, is it like, should you be worried about sitting in a slouch posture? That that's kind of the debate. So this is the spine flexion debate is, is, is contentious and it should be contentious because we actually don't know a lot here. Mm -hmm. So it's not, I don't think anyone should have really strong uh, opinions on it. So I, I I've only just said in the past, like, how bad can spine flexion be if it's something we're always doing? Like if you have a trained deadlifter, he or she will probably lift with 80% of max flexion, right? So they're, yeah. they're almost flexing their spine completely and they can be safe and healthy their whole career. So I would say, how bad is it to go out of neutral? What what we don't know is perhaps like, and I will also concede like if someone lifts and they bend their spine 100% and you teach them to only bend at 80%, they might have a lot less pain, so there, there certainly is a a, a case where sometimes you you want to change up how people move. So it it can help their symptomatology, but you could also say the opposite. Some people try to keep their spine really rigid, and maybe they only bend at seventy percent. You teach them to be relaxed and bend ninety percent, and they actually feel better. Mm-hmm. So there, there's no. I don't think there's one one right way. So it's a it's a it's a it's a really tough uh, topic that we should all like be pretty humble about.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we like just that there is variability rather than um in terms of approaches there are a lot of people who provide perspective and within our client base we can tell you which ones are lifting um with a flexion moment versus which ones are encouraged to not lift that way and it also depends on the type of training that we're doing you know we have some strong men they have to lift yeah. And know how to it's it's really understanding, like, if you know how you're moving and you have awareness of how you're moving, then we can affect change. If somebody's just stuck a single way and unaware of it and and is also in pain, then sure, we can look at um, an intervention in terms of changing their movement posture and seeing if that reduces things. So I like that you take a very much it depends approach with that, because I don't think that we we know conclusively. Now, in light of that, though, there's also that whole idea of perfect posture. And, and we've seen online these gadgets that people can put on their shoulders to zap them and remind them to sit up straight and things like that. Uh, can you discuss your take on perfect posture?
2: Yeah. So m- mine is that there isn't one. If it hurts, then do something else. It's that, it's that simple. Like, I have no pro- like I'm, I'm in my bed right now and my spine is fully rounded. And I could be like this all day. And then I'll tonight I'll go on the trampoline and I'll load it and I'll strength train and who cares. Like I, I, I think that these like this posture idea that there's one right way that we should be most of the time. I, I don't agree with that. But posture for technique and performance, like for, for performance, it matters then. like Because if I'm doing gymnastics, there's a better position and shape for my body to be in for different tasks or rock climbing. Absolutely. Or deadlifting when I deadlift 30 pounds massive, <laughs> but like, but I wouldn't like with deadlifting and I don't really train heavy a- a anymore. And I, I should, I'm just, I, I'm lazy. Um, uh, <laughs> I think technique matters, but I think it's more, but I wouldn't get caught up on the position of the spine if it's flexed and you feel comfortable and that's your strongest position great slowly get into that someone else will feel better in a more neutral position or more like that's your classic better posture and that works for them i'd be more concerned that they're using your hips and they're getting a stimulus for their hips to adapt or whatever their their goal is of the exercise um, so so the perfect posture thing i can't get caught up in it like we we change our posture so much throughout the day it's just it, it doesn't make sense about trying to like, if, if you don't like your posture, just change it. It's that easy. <laughs> like aesthetically <laughs> just yes. stand in a different posture. Okay. There you go. Great.
0: <laughs> well, I think For the I mean, like
2: we worry about these things. We spend so much time on these things and it's just like nothing.
0: Yeah. I think the biggest risk is, is becoming rigid in any given position and not having movement variability within our system.
2: Yeah, yeah, and so you'll hear hear that. And actually, Stu Stu McGill was famous twenty years ago. Who I first heard it was to move your posture and put your feet up on your desk when you sat. He he always encouraged that. Yeah. And now you hear people say it a lot, but to be honest, there's not a lot of research saying variability, especially with sitting, is better. And so I'm kind of moving to the to the idea like, fine, move it up if it hurts, but don't think that you always have to be moving because now you're going to create a nation of fidgeters. It's like sitting can be, can be painful sometimes, but don't blame the sitting. Blame all the other things in your life that might be causing you to be sensitive. What aren't you doing? Like, you know, our, what hobbies aren't you doing? What, what activities aren't you doing? How, what's your sleep? What's your diet like? Like, so the pain just shows up when you're sitting, but don't blame sitting, blame everything else. That's mm-hmm. the other idea. Because yeah. there are people who have to sit 10 hours a day. And if we tell them sitting is the new smoking And sitting is so horrible for you, but they're like, but I need to have a job. And now they just feel doomed and that's why their back is sore. So they blame sitting when instead we should say, no, no, let's work on everything else so we can tolerate your sitting.
0: Absolutely. Building up tolerance to various positions, including sitting.
1: Yeah, sure. I think a lot of people need to hear that.
0: Now, we always ask our guests a few wrap-up questions. And the first one is, what is the most impactful book that you've read in the last year?
2: Oh, I only read nerd books. No, that's what uh, we want. <laughs> no, no, not like like uh, edifying books. Like, uh, I read fantasy.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I, we have a I, coolie kid about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I
1: figured that's what you meant. And like, yeah, if that's what you read, what do you read, man?
2: Steep, like. What am I reading now? I mean, I just reread like The Wheel of Time because I read that ages ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve, like all the Steven Erickson. That's the Malazan books. Okay. Uh, the Lightbringer series. Yeah. I read a lot. I'm reading the Abercrombie book. I'm having trouble getting into that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So because I travel a lot. I don't watch movies on the plane. I just I just read my nerd books
0: that's awesome
2: <laughs> yeah nothing i i buy like educational books i just don't read them <laughs> yeah
1: good paperweights or
2: like it yeah they're just on the shelf makes you Maybe look my cool kids will. yeah i got well yeah yeah it's
1: hard they, <laughs> they don't. see freya brings all these books into the house that she reads but then i feel like i look smart because i've got a bunch of books on the wall yeah it's great <laughs> so aside from that what is your non-negotiable daily self-care tool or habit i sleep a lot like i don't (laughs) don't know
2: i i had you guys booked in for eight which seemed weird but i think i i booked in this time when i was in london or something or some time zone change i was like oh there's no way i'm doing that at eight and i I, then i found out i was at one so like (laughs) i right now my my schedule is all messed up with the self-isolating like i'm going to bed at 12 30 or one. And so I'm, I'm like sleeping past nine and the kids, my kids all sleep in till 10. Like, so, so sleep, sleep and trampoline.
1: <laughs> it's a good balance. That is yeah.
2: brilliant.
0: Um, as far as it, we, this is, we're adding this in cause this is pertinent to our time. As far as COVID-19 goes, what are you and your family doing? in the period of isolation to keep yourself sane?
2: So I'm ignoring the family. Like uh, they have to stay away from me. Uh, That's the primary thing uh, for like during school hours. And (laughs) and my wife's running that. And then uh, like we we have a trampoline and then we do lots of trampoline with the kids. So I just do the sports. I just bought a basketball net. Uh, I'm running a lot and the kids will come running. So that, that's, that's what we're doing. I went out, I actually, last night, I don't know if my wife likes this. I went my, I went to my, like some friend's house. There's just two of them there, husband and wife. And I sat 10 feet apart outside and had beer. So we'll do, I'll do that like every 10 days. So we're still self, self isolating. Like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't touch them. There was no contact. So that's uh, hey.
1: if you were a solid <laughs> 10 feet away, that's great. I mean, I, and I mean, outside and outside. Yeah. And yeah, I saw... we we're out, out, outside 10 feet away. Yeah. yeah no, no
2: contact. And so, uh, I know some people, like personal trainers, I, I think it's a great idea, are, are meeting their clients in the park, but they're still at a distance. Mm. It seems It seems to be a safe compromise. I'm not an expert, but from what I've read, it seems like that's acceptable, I think. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't know at this point. It. I mean, I think as long as they aren't in supposed to be in quarantine, they should be all right. Unless, of course, they're doing that with like 30 people a day and it's hard yeah, to keep yeah. track. yeah.
2: that'd be an issue the ravine system in toronto is busy eh? have you guys been out on the paths
0: no because there's a lot of people out i know we were worried about that but we're in quarantine because we just got back from the uk so we have another 10 days we haven't stepped outside the house but our main concern was people are going to take the opportunity to go explore the trails and we heard that the boardwalk was really busy and some trails in western canada were shut down because everyone was trying to take the opportunity to go outside, not realizing that everyone else had the same idea. Yeah, that's a problem.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think everyone needs to Yeah, getting outside is cool. Exercise is amazing. But like you, you gotta stay away from people. You can't you can't go places that are gonna be crowded and yeah. narrow. Yeah. So uh you gotta keep that in mind, yeah. folks. Yeah, Um, I
2: haven't haven't been on the ravines just because of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. We probably won't even when we're allowed to go outside of the house. (laughs) Uh, So if you had five minutes with someone, what one thing would you try and impart to help them with their pain or general health?
2: The big thing I always ask people in pain, and it's related to health, I always ask them, like, how do you think you can be healthier? And this is the idea that sometimes pain can like these non-specific interventions can be helpful. And that, that question of like, how can you be healthier? Like, what are the things you can do related to your health like today? And that could be exercise. It could be spending time with friends. It could be going to church. Like if you look at the massive, like um, very comprehensive definition of health, that it's all the areas of, of your life, then, then I would say, okay, let's start doing that. And then mm-hmm. so you, you have to buy into the idea that pain is multidimensional, influenced by a number of factors, and that a lot of things can help you. And so let, let's work on, on the ones that you want. And then sometimes I'm not the right person to help them because it could be their mental health. And so they just they need to work with somebody else or mm-hmm. I'm co-managing.
1: So yeah, that, that's, that's the one
2: thing I work on. I talk about But that's a hard shift. That's a hard shift for the public. People come to a physio, they're like, oh, you're going to tighten this muscle or loosen this one or crack this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm saying, what are the general things we could do? Right. So that's, it's it's not an easy uh, acceptance there, but it's right. It's true.
0: (laughs) It is true.
1: (laughs) It is true. And it's those, those open-ended questions to ask people and kind of let them answer their own questions and see where their opportunities are. Right. Yeah. So finally, Greg, what projects are you currently working on and where can people find you? So
2: my website's greglayman.ca and my clinic website where I mostly see people online, although I have a clinic in my house, that's movementoptimism.com. What a surprise. Um, <laughs> nice. And then what my pro- the big project I'm working on, and for years my wife started it for her MPH, but I've just taken it over and I'm rewriting. It. It's like an online and a YouTube channel for uh, knee and hip osteoarthritis that we're doing. It's like, uh, trying to put like resources, explaining what's going on, exercise, activity, coping, re- different re- uh, things that people could do that I'm, I'm creating a website called OA optimism.
1: <laughs>
2: dot, dot com. Yeah. And that's going to be a, uh, a YouTube channel. So I'm just like shooting the video and doing the animation and all, and all that stuff over the next, uh, Like, it's kind of done, but now I'm redoing it because I'm picky.
1: (laughs) Understood. (laughs)
0: Understood. No, that's excellent. Well, when that is, we'll keep an eye out. I assume that you'll post about it um, because when that's up and running, we'd love to send that out to people. I'm going to
2: say six weeks. That's what I'm going to set. I'm going to set that goal. Well,
0: I mean, now that we're all kind of in isolation and you're not able to teach as much. That's your yeah. <laughs> that's your golden moment potentially to power through a whole bunch of videos.
2: Yeah, I don't have a course till the end of April. Oh, there you in Vancouver, go, Vancouver, and I don't I don't know if that'll be happening. It might. It's in Canada. There's only forty people.
0: Yeah. So. The, fingers crossed. Like the one that I was due to teach at the end of April is cancelled, but I'm hopeful yeah. for you. Well, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. And we really appreciate it. We appreciate your insight and always appreciate the debates that you have going on on Twitter. They're well-formulated. They're not just angry like a lot of other (laughs) users on that platform. And so thank you for the resources that you're constantly putting out there.
1: Oh, thank you. All right. Well, I think that wraps up another episode of the Move Daily Health Podcast. Thank you very much, Greg. And we'll see everyone next time. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.